In our last episode, when Berger and his gang had scores to settle, dressing in drag was their best option to take care of their dirty business. Berger also found himself resorting to threats of violence to keep the doings of his gang under wraps. A Night of Another Sort Prohibition Days and Charlie Berger by Gary Deneal Chapter 19 Aerial Bombing If the impression is given that the twilight of Indian summer had a mellowing effect on hostilities, that Newman had nothing better to do than force a young man to dance on the sawdust floor with his heavy work shoes, that somehow the winding down of 1926 had brought out the best and the worst, a shaft of sunlight in the dark, so to speak. An incident that occurred the night of November 5th quickly put that rumor to rest. That night, two or three cars drove into the tough little coal mining town of Culp, located a few miles west of Heron, and even fewer miles north of Carterville. Whether followers of Berger or Shelton gangsters, as most accounts suggest, the men within those vehicles had no use for the youthful gambler Johnny Milroy. One version has it that Milroy was forced to grovel in the street before a hoodlum behind a tripod-mounted machine gun opened fire. Outraged that such a thing should happen in his town, Mayor Jeff Stone soon arrived with his police chief, a man named Keith. The mayor was shot as he stepped from the car. Sure to suffer a like fate, Keith bolted. Fire flashed as he ran, but only once was he hit, that once in the hand. He ran, it is said, until he reached Carterville, where a Dr. Foster treated the wound. No, said the police chief the next day, he did not recognize his assailants. Similar denials came from almost everyone who had witnessed the shootings. Said one man to a reporter for the United Press, We didn't see anything at all. If we were to admit that we did, we'd never see anything again. When the coroner's jury was finally called into session, Boswell had ordered the first session postponed so that additional witnesses might be located. The tension prevailed. Not enough evidence was presented to warrant indictments, however, and the old refrain of death at the hands of parties unknown droned forth again. Why Milroy was killed is not clear, but according to newspaper speculation, each side had its reasons for killing Stone. Berger, because the mayor had not supported the Republican ticket in the recent November 2nd election in Williamson County as he had requested. And Shelton, because earlier that year, Stone had killed then-Chief of Police John Freeman, a friend of the Shelton crowd. As usual, the coroner's jury had exonerated the recently elected mayor. Still other accusations were to follow, including those of Rado Milich, who would credit the killings to Harry Thomason and two other of Berger's hangers-on. Many years later, this writer had occasion to talk to one of the men Millich had accused of the crime. The old man shook his head, claiming he had never even heard of Jeff Stone, although he had heard of A.P. Milroy. Hours before the killings, the Carterville Herald, a weekly journal appearing each Friday, reported what must have seemed to the editor a newsworthy item. 
Monday night, November 1st, two of the Sheltons were in Carterville with some eight or ten men. They dropped in at the Carterville Cafe for a short time. They were in two large cars, according to one who saw and noticed them. Just what their mission was is not known. They may have had a number of things in mind. The story is told that on the night of the killings, a boy in his late teens, who was something of a wizard on the slot machines, was hiding in the beer cooler at Pete Salmo's, a bootleg joint in Culp. His winnings from the Shelton-owned machines had been considerable, and to make matters worse, the burger gang had escorted him from joint to joint, taking for their trouble a hefty cut of the earnings. The story goes that when word reached the Sheltons that the boy wonder was in town, they drove to the mining camp. Failing to find the lad, they concentrated their fire upon Milroy and Stone instead. I asked the one-time slot machine prodigy to verify the account of his hiding out that bloody night. He didn't deny it, but was reluctant to add details. Straying from the killings of Milroy and Stone, it might be mentioned that the account of the boy Wonder has a near match in another story. This one told by a former pool hustler who once worked for Burger at the latter's pool hall in Harco. In this instance, as in the other, it is clear that the gang leader had a keen appreciation of talent, especially when it promised a solid financial return. For the privilege of playing, quote, all night for nothing, the Harco boy had only to rack the balls for the other players. When the opportunity presented itself, his other job was to win prearranged matches with the other pool hustlers, but always with the cooperation of his boss. Their system was simple. When Charlie walked to the door, the budding hustler would let his opponent win, but when his silent partner kept away from the door, the game was for keeps. Men would come from Chicago, he says, although St. Louis seems more likely, to play and compete against him. One night, his share of the winnings was $1,500, or one-tenth of the total. Needless to say, the remaining $13,500 went to Burger. But to get back to the events that happened that fall of 1926, around 2 a.m. on November 10th, a homemade bomb was tossed from an automobile speeding past the barbecue stand at Shady Rest. Instead of destroying the stand, as the bomber intended, the explosion merely shattered the windows of a nearby farmhouse. At almost exactly the same hour, two days later, Joe Adams' home in West City was machine-gunned. Again, no one was injured. In retaliation, Joe's friends the Sheltons decided to carry the battle one rung higher. Hours after West City was rudely awakened, a single-engine airplane circled Shady Rest. In the cabin at the time were Connie Ritter and Steve George. Presumably, George wanted to use the Big Bird for target practice, but Ritter managed to restrain him, as he thought it might be a government plane. The airplane circled higher, possibly to be out of range of any gunfire from below. From an altitude of about 400 feet, three bundles were dropped. One of these exploded near the hard road, by one account killing a bulldog and an eagle. The other two bombs failed to explode. Circling back to survey the damage, the bombardiers were fired upon by Ritter himself. The half dozen or so shots he sent on their way were of little consequence for the plane disappeared to the east, seemingly untouched. That his foes would resort to such unorthodox measures had never occurred to Berger, 
Before, he had been concerned that rival gunmen might hide behind the trees, so down went the trees, leaving his masterpiece of revelry a target from the air. This once, his persistent enemies had been clever, but the small pair of dice he kept in his pocket for luck was still potent, since the bombs were mostly duds. Each of the three bombs consisted of a bottle of nitroglycerin surrounded by sticks of dynamite. For some time, Berger had known that the Sheltons had the powerful explosives, or so he told W.A.S. Douglas, a writer from the East. If only he had realized that the glycerin was on the fritz, he and the boys could have fought it out with the rival gang. His pencil racing over the pad, Douglas volunteered that perhaps it wasn't too late after all. Oh, but it was, came the reply, because by now the skulking cowards were back in East St. Louis. But Joe Adams was still in West City. One week after the airplane attack, the home of West City's mayor was damaged by a bomb blast. No one was injured. The following day, the explosion that rocked West City brought, among numerous sightseers, a young woman who worked for the Benton Evening News and her fellow worker and fiancé, William Bay. On a whim that cold day, the couple had walked to the Adams home from the Benton Square. Recalled Rhoda Bay, When we walked up on the front porch, the front door was lying down in the living room. Mrs. Adams said, Oh, Rhoda, shut the door after you. You're letting all the heat up. And she was laughing like it had been a joke. Joe, on the other hand, failed to see the humor of the situation. He was pacing the front porch with a machine gun on his arm. When the young lady suggested that he vacate the country for his own protection, Adams replied, All I want is a shot at one of those SOBs. He certainly had plenty to shoot with, as Rhoda soon discovered for herself. I didn't know that anybody kept that many guns outside an armory. One part of the dining room was stacked full of guns. Still, for all his sophisticated weaponry, Joe Adams was incredibly naive. While Adams paced with weapon in hand, praying for a shot at Handsome Charlie, his enemy was plotting not only Adams' demise, but also that of another rival closer to home, one Virgil Hunsacker, a bootlegger in West Harrisburg. The revelers at Flo Stone's place drank moonshine and cavorted. Suddenly, Madame Flo heard the familiar racket of machine gun fire, as did her customers, a rough crowd according to one fellow who was there. Located on Route 13 just west of Harrisburg, this brothel and roadhouse that Flo managed for Burger was much too easy a target for passing gunmen. One young man who happened to be seated with some of the young people on a couch in the front room observed that the bullets were thudding into the lower part of the couch, just missing everyone's legs. Running toward the back door, the fleeing customer paused in mid-flight, just long enough to snatch one of the two jars of moonshine setting on the kitchen table. Crouched by a window upstairs, Flo's son Clyde saw it all. As soon as the gunman made a pass and disappeared towards Harrisburg, Clyde ran downstairs. Before the clock's second hand could turn full circle, he was driving hard toward Shady Rest to deliver the bad news to Berger and his men. He figured the gunman who shot up his mother's place would take a U-turn at the Doris Heights detour and there swing back west for another round of hot lead and mayhem. To tarry on the highway would ensure him a blizzard of bullets. Meanwhile in Harrisburg, George Cummins and two of his drinking pals had bought a couple of half pints at a pig stand 
a small shack of a building where candy bars, soft drinks, and tobacco served to divert attention from the whiskey sold there. The young men then went to a restaurant and bought a Coke, before wandering into an alley for some serious drinking. Suddenly, headlights shined upon them. More than 50 years later, Cummins recalled that night, There were two cars, a Lincoln sedan and a Lincoln coupe. I passed the bottle around, and I was taking a swig, and I felt something or another hit me in the side. I recognized the guy that had the gun. It looked like a sawed-off shotgun. It was Bert Owens, from Dorisville, who was in Burger's gang. I didn't call his name, and he didn't call mine. I didn't want him to recognize me. Couldn't tell nothing about that bunch. So they started asking us if we knew who shot up Florence Stone's place at the west of town. We told them we didn't know anything about it. Once Cummins persuaded the men he and his friends had only been drinking in the alley, they were questioned about any cars they might have seen driving past. After they asked us three or four questions, they went back over to Burger's place. A short time later, Cummins and friends again encountered these same gangsters, though in another part of town. Apparently, the search was still on for the thugs who had shot up Flo's place. At least Cummins felt the three of them were being watched too closely, and to escape further scrutiny, they went into a pool hall, where they slipped out a side door into the night. When the amateur detectives from Shady Rest concluded they had found the guilty party at last, Berger's response was resounding. The dynamite blast that wrecked the home of bootlegger Virgil Hunsacker at about 4 a.m. on November 25th jarred Harrisburg's West End. Some residents were even knocked to the floor. That was only round one. Several hours later, at 6.45 p.m., Hunsacker, Lewis Robinson, and Millard Vinson were driving west of Harrisburg on their way back to town via detour, when Hunsacker noticed a car following them. He thought little about it until the car, a Chrysler, drew near and the passengers began firing. Passing, they poured another volley into Hunsacker's hapless Oakland coupe. Hunsacker and the others scurried for cover for their lives. The bootlegger, as it turned out, took a bullet through his neck, another through his right side, and still another in his arm. Robinson was shot in both feet. Luckiest of the three was Vinson, who was taken to jail. With only a slight foot wound to remind him of the recent excitement, the man, though drunk, had some advice for outgoing Sheriff Small. John, if you don't stop these fellows who are carrying guns around your county, someone's gonna get hurt. Despite his condition, the fellow's observation was sound, although it would have carried more weight if a loaded Thompson some machine gun, a 30-30 rifle, and a 38 Colt Special had not been recovered from what was left of the Oakland coupe. During the shooting, Charlie Berger was busy making himself visible in front of the Orpheum Theater while the crowd within watched Anita Stewart and Lionel Belmont in Never the Twain Shall Meet. When somebody, perhaps theater manager Steve Farrar, told Charlie about the shooting, the gangster decided to go home. After all, his alibi was good. Far better, in fact, than the marksmanship of some of his men. Alibis were always a big thing with Charlie. One man recalled how Berger and or members of his gang would sometimes park on the west side of Harrisburg Square, before slowly and deliberately strolling around the square. When such a performance occurred, others in the street assumed a holdup or a murder was happening elsewhere. 
Whether Virgil Hunsaker acted on his own or at the behest of Carl Shelton was a question the people in Harrisburg asked in the days following the explosion and shootings, or until other events, no less dramatic, soon put such asking to rest. His misfortunes having earned him a small place in the New York Times, Hunsaker finally recovered, only to find that he was once again an obscure bootlegger. Not so lucky was his sworn enemy, Charlie Berger. November 1926, the month in which the Warring Gangs gave the United States an early aerial bombing, ended with a spectacular robbery of the Bond County State Bank at Pocahontas, Illinois. While two men waited outside in a closed automobile, three companions hurried into the bank, lined up the patrons, and proceeded to help themselves to the money in the cages. The day before, employees of the Pocahontas Mining Company had been paid in vouchers. The money with which these vouchers were to be redeemed had been shipped to the bank, and more than half of the miners had already received their pay. Even so, the robbers managed to gather up $5,000 for their trouble. As the holdup men fled, the townsmen raised their rifles and fired repeatedly. But as far as they could see, they only shot out a window in the escape car. That night, Dr. J.C. Leitner of Harrisburg heard a knock at his front door. Before him stood his friend Charlie Berger and some of his men, one of whom had been shot in the leg. For attending to the wound, Dr. Leitner was given a new $100 bill, a small part of the Bond County take. It was his understanding that part of the proceeds also went to the City National Bank of Harrisburg, where Berger did most of his banking. Two of the officials of the bank, he added, were aware of the money's origins. Recently, when reference was made to the incident, one of the ex-gang members denied Leitner's allegation, claiming that wine, women, and song had consumed every penny. Again and again, the bank robbery at Pocahontas would crop up in confessions, in court transcripts, and in various allegations. And like the Masonic Temple riots, the repercussions would be far-reaching. Convinced by newspaper accounts that the Burger Gang of Southern Illinois was the ideal refuge for such social misfits as thieves, murderers, and stutterers, the young man had journeyed east to notorious Shady Rest. There, he had set about proving himself by stealing a car. 